to the Triage Method Podcast. This is a rare episode where Paddy and I are actually together for the recording. You may notice that in the audio. If you're watching, you're obviously going to notice. But yeah, I'm in Dublin this weekend. The mighty Dublin. The mighty, the virgin Dublin. Versus the giant Kerry. <laughs> so yeah, I'm up in Dublin this weekend. Um, recording the podcast. We're gonna do a special. Why are you? I'm up in Dublin to do my first BJJ competition, which I'd be dying for. And to be honest, I'm just looking forward to a good meal after lunch. You know, whether it's five five minute competition or three hours and three hours and three seconds. About three three seconds. Yeah, so that's going to be good. We've got a big list of questions here. You can see them if you're on video, and we're gonna just. Work get through them, get cracking, work through them, crack them up as we go, and hopefully you guys enjoy it yourself. So, to start off, pretty dense question, but something that we've written about, we've written about quite a bit, on the topic of amenorrhea, that's the loss of period, of your period or regular menstrual cycle, and basically it was more of a request than a question, but address the myth that girls only lose their period due to low body fat, and what's a girl to do. Uh, yeah, so first of all, we're not doctors, but you might be something. I say might. Yeah, this uh, is not medical advice. It's not medical advice. Actually, you need to talk to a medical practitioner about this stuff. So this is just kind of like, these are points that you should think about. That's not the same or anything. Um, but to answer the question, it's actually a really easy question to answer. Like, as a, as a scientist, you're always limited by your ability to ask good questions right and what I mean by that is you, you don't know what you don't know right so when, when you go about researching a topic or actually trying to look deeper into a topic you're going to be presented with information that you can assess and essentially make it in your head look like or you can think essentially that a certain thing is causative rather than correlative, right? And what I mean by that is, you can look at things that happen together, right? And you can go, oh, well, this thing obviously caused this other thing, because in this population we look at, this process happens, and then this event happens. So you can go, this happens, and this happens, and in your everyday life, in your everyday thinking, you would go, that makes sense that this causes this, you know? If, like I said, it's like a domino effect. You're like, okay, well, this is what happens. If I touch this domino, down the line, this happens, right? And that's that's essentially where this myth, we'll say, came about. Because you would have people that would have low body fat, and they would get amenorrhea, right? And that could be in people that are athletes, for example. That could be in people that are, you know, just diving to look better. It could be in people that are competitors that, that's a, a very prevalent one again you would then go okay that's further bolstering my hypothesis because these people get even leaner than all the rest of them and it appears that they get it more often than the rest so you're like there i have my my hypothesis i have my data that supports this and i'm concluding that this causes this right but you then get presented with other data points and you have to then think a little bit deeper you have to look into the topic from a different angle right and one of these data points that essentially refutes that and actually points to better theories is the fact that people who undergo like gastric bypass surgery get amenorrhea right so they could easily be 40, 50% body fat, you know, like obese, like clinically obese, like really down the road with that, where it's like you, you weigh 400 pounds and like you need to lose weight or like serious health complications are going to occur, right? So they get gastric bypass surgery and then amenorrhea occurs, right? So they still have the, the high body fat. That hasn't gone down yet. That may be going down, but the, the body fat itself is still high. And they're getting amenorrhea. So that, that kind of invalidates your first hypothesis, which is, okay, well, is is it low body fat that's causing it? Or 
is it the process of getting low body fat that's causing it? And that's, that's the current hypothesis. Low energy availability leads to amenorrhea, right? Because you get down regulation of what we'll call them signaling hormones, you know, like lower insulin levels, lower thyroid, that kind of stuff, right? And all as a consequence of dieting. So it's not necessarily the low body fat that's causing it, it's the low energy availability that's causing it. So the processes you undertake to get to low body fat, that's, that's causing it, right? And this is then obviously going to be exacerbated if you are undertaking more extreme processes. You know, like if you were on a 500 calorie diet, you know, and that, that's all you're eating. Like that's, you're more likely then to get amenorrhea or menstrual cycle irregularities, even if your body fat is still high, right? And like, it's a, it's a little bit hard to tease out some of the nuances because obviously if you have body fat to lose, you still have energy available to your body because that's what body fat is being used as, but that's not technically true, but that is true. And you're using that body fat as energy, as an energy source for the body. And as a result, you aren't necessarily in an energy deficit. You are actually in an energy deficit because you're not eating as much and your activity presumably is staying the same. But your body is actually making up the difference in the energy that it needs by using your body fat, you know? So you still do have the energy. So this is where the, the nuance comes about. And you really have to dive in deep to the particulars of the individual themselves because all of these variables play into it. And just going like, oh, you're on a 500 calorie deficit, that means you're going to get menstrual uh, cycle irregularities. That's not necessarily true for you as an individual. So you'll see people that are, say, more protected from this kind of stuff. You will see them not get these irregularities. And as a result, then go, yeah, that's obviously not the case. This is not the diet I can prescribe this kind of large deficit to other people, and they should be fine. And that's not necessarily the case for that individual. So there is a huge amount of individual variability to this, but once you understand that it's actually the processes that you have to undertake to lose body fat rather than your body fat level that dictates whether this will happen, then you can start making better protocols. You can start thinking about this issue in a better way. Now there are other variability or variables that go into this, such as stress, sleep, recovery, you know, training volume, but they all kind of feed into that energy availability hypothesis, you know? And the stress and stuff, like that's somewhat through different mechanisms, but it, it does play into it. But uh, yeah, I think that covers everything, but we still have to deal with what, what's there to do about it. So do you mind to add before we get to that? Yeah, no, I think, I think it's a super, super point really just to, to clarify like that, it, that there is a distinct difference between like low energy availability and one's actual body fat, because like you said, they do always go together, but if you think of it from the perspective of someone who has lost their period and they're at a higher level of body fat, that can often be very disempowering because I've heard those stories of women who, you know, lost their men's lost their menstrual cycle or the regularity to it and gone to their doctor, but because they're maybe overweight or whatever, the doctor's just like, Oh yeah, this this isn't due to diet because you're not lean enough. So it is really important to to understand that distinction there. And then the other point you touched on that I think was important was I guess the difference between surviving and thriving in that, like, if you've got a lot of extra body fat and you just don't eat, like, yeah, that fuel, that's there to be used for fuel, but your body is still able to, quote-unquote, sense some sort of threat and the signaling processes that, that, that go on then are going to reflect that. So you could have more aggressive metabolic adaptation than someone who is really lean while you're overweight because of very large relative energy deficiency. So if you're like someone who is, is let's say 40 pounds overweight versus some arbitrary number, and you go into a 1200 calorie deficit or something like that, then you're gonna adapt you know, quite a bit to that. You're the, the, the different signaling processes, the endocrinology, etc., is gonna reflect that, even though you have plenty of fat that's there for you. So there's a very distinct difference there between what it takes to survive, because like, yeah, you're not going to die, you've got the fuel there. And what it takes to actually thrive in that, you know, what it takes to, to feel well, to have everything running smoothly. So there's, there's very distinct differences there. And then I suppose in terms of like, what what's a girl to actually 
do in this case. But just before we go on yeah. to that, you also mentioned about like this can be very disempowering. But people can also play this off as not being an issue. Mm-hmm. And you see that a lot where it's like, oh, it's, he just lost your period. Like, it's fine. Like, it's actually, yeah. it's, it's less of a stressor now. I don't have to fucking buy all this material to deal with that. And I also just don't have to deal with that myself. Don't have to think about it. Like, that's fine. It's cool. But you have to remember, especially if you are in your teens and 20s, like, it's a very important process. Like, you're actually laying down bone density right now as a, as a result of these hormonal fluctuations here. And that's to do you for the rest of your life. You know, that's not to say that you can't lay down like bone density later in life, especially if you see people do like uh, they take up resistance training when they're in their forties or whatever, and then obviously their bone density goes up and everything. But it's a very important time, especially if you are not really actively engaged in resistance training at, at, the, at this time. You know, but you have to keep it in your head that well, yes, dealing with your period may be a bit of a stress, and you're just like fucking hack this, like. A, I'd rather not have it. Like you do actually want to have it for all the, the health accessory health benefits yeah, yeah. to it or whatever you want to call them. Um so if that is a thought process that you're engaged in, you need to kind of just take a step back and go, Okay, I actually need to think long term and like while it may be fine that I just don't have to deal with this rather annoying inconvenience for three to five days every month, you might be like, Okay, I'm actually just gonna step back from that thought process and go this is actually something that I need in terms of my health long term. So take that as well into, yeah. into consideration. Yeah, because I did actually have a client once who was in that thought process because you know she had been to her doctor, and the main discussion was, you know, I worried about do you want to have kids, and she was like, no, I have no interest in having kids. And the take home point was, oh, you don't need to worry about this. You know? So so her her thought process for the year or two following that was that. I don't need to worry about the fact that I don't have a period because I don't want kids. Whereas, like, I would I wouldn't view it as like an independent thing. I view it as a signal of what's actually going on in your physiology. And like you alluded to, the bone density thing is super super important because as you get older, as you move into menopause and postmenopause, um, or or that time period in general, as you begin to age as a woman, like osteoporosis is something that can really take away from your quality of life. Like one of the the, the most prominent examples of that is like elderly people who have like hip fractures if you fall and like fracture the neck of your femur like that's pretty much the end for you a lot of the time as in the death rate that was a horse you chewed it yeah like like, you're you're immobile now essentially the mortality rates after that are are, like very significant and and just restoring your normal function is going to be very very difficult so you definitely don't want to be putting that stuff off for decades you want to be thinking of it now because like you're going to regret it otherwise, essentially. And also, just on top of that, obviously, if you are thinking about getting pregnant in the future, like the, yeah. the, the better you can keep your fertility in a good place, obviously, the easier you would hope that would be. I'm not going to say that it's a definite, but you would assume or you would think that it would be easier to go about that process if you have been looking after your cycle, if you've been looking after your reproductive health all along. Whereas if you're just like, yeah, now sometimes, like, I just go into this huge deficit and I just lose my period for like two years at a time. It's like, well, to get pregnant then, like you have to then recover that and get that back into a good place if you're trying to like plan, like do some family planning. Like obviously, you know, random events can occur and, you know, uh, but if you, if you are looking to get pregnant, have a family in the future, like that is, it is something you need to be thinking about now rather than going like, oh, I'll deal with that one. It comes to, you know? Yeah, um, and what else is I just gonna say there? Oh yeah, in terms of like this advice, like obviously there's, there's there's nutritional and training considerations that are important, but you also have to still consult with your doctor because it could be that this is just reflecting some other disease process that is ongoing or something else that could be treated very simply. So you still do, still do have to go down that 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 process because some people just think that well because they went to their doctor once and they got no help that. They just need yeah. to find the nutrition solution and that's it, whereas that's definitely not always the case. Yeah, and also, I just, I never understand, like, first of all, like, you can have an argument about the, the healthcare system and say that, you know, the first line protocol is like, oh, here's the pill. Yeah. And that's not actually su- sorting out the, the underlying issue, right? But, you know, we live in a, a democratic society, like, any first world country, like, you, well, most first world countries, 
you have the ability to go, okay, well, I don't actually like that advice. I'm going to go get a second opinion. I'm going to go to a different doctor. I'm going to, you know, go to a specialist. You know, maybe you have to be on a wait list for fucking two years or whatever in Ireland or, you know, any country that has, like, socialized medicine. But at least you can go get that, you know? So don't don't just go, oh, this is the, the one piece of advice. I didn't like it, so I'm just writing off the medical healthcare system. Like that's like going to your mechanic, your, your car has a warning light on and the mechanic goes, yeah, I, I don't know how to fix this. And you just go, right, I'm just going to drive with the, the warning light on forever now. It's like, okay, well, there's clearly an issue here. Let's, let's go to someone who does know how to fix this or does know how to help you in a way that you find acceptable, you know? But the last part of that is like, what's a girl to do? Well, it's actually pretty straightforward. Just eat more, right? Which, you know, that's that's helpful advice, but also just extremely unhelpful because it's like, well, have goals, I want a six pack, I want to do whatever, you know, I hope I'm weight class for, you know, whatever it is. But that's an issue of you actually setting and accomplishing the actual goals that you have, you know, like prioritizing your goals. Like if you're like, I I'm going to be competing in the Olympics in two years' time and I need to qualify in these competitions and I need to be a, at a certain weight, it's like that may be more important to you than your health, you know? Like and that's, that's a trade-off you have to make, you know? If you think that getting a six-pack and doing it your way, dieting on the lower, lower calories, and this this is also something that you have to take into account. Even if you do everything right, that doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to be exempt from this, you know? Like, I think we need to take a, a longer time period view of this, where it's like, okay, you might lose it if you do a 12-week diet, but you can then kind of reverse edit on a little bit spend some time at, you know, kind of maintenance calories, recover your 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 cycle, and then, you know, maybe do a, a dieting period again, and, like, get to the level of neatness or body composition that you're happy with over two to five years, rather than 12 weeks, you know, which a lot of people aren't willing to actually do. It's like, oh, I have a holiday in three months, so let's go for this, you know, it's like, you have to be thinking that long-term approach, so keep, keep that in mind, but essentially, you have to do a a priority checklist or whatever you want to call it where it's like these these are my priorities I've actually laid these out like is health at the forefront because a lot of people say that but then do things that are fundamentally dichotomous to that you know so you, you actually have to sit down with yourself and think what you're actually trying to accomplish and where your priorities lie you know so it's not helpful but you know eat more or do less like that's also the other side of the, the calorie equation. Like if you're training twice a day, six days per week, you know, you're like, oh, I do my hour cardio in the morning and my resistance training in the evening. It's like, okay, well, like, this is one segment of the, the energy availability stuff. If you're using all this energy towards training and recovering from training, you know, you either have to eat more to support that or you can just reduce your training volume and as a result have higher calorie availability, you know? So, a little bit of both sides of the, the equation in terms of training and nutrition. You just have to assess what you're actually doing. Yeah, I mean, it, it's a tough process as well. Like, and I've, I've, we've seen that with a number of our clients where, like, you know, you have some people who, you know, maybe they notice some irregularities and they miss a period, like, at the end of their diet, but then once they get back to maintenance, it's like, it's just normal again. But then you have other people who just take much longer to, to regulate again. You see a number of case reports related to bodybuilding as well. There was one case report, I think, where one one female competitor who had competed in, I think, the female physique division. It took her something like 18 months or something like that to, to regain a regular cycle. And I mean, that's a long time. That's something that's difficult to commit to. So, like, in that case where you're you're in it for the long run, like working with a coach or a medical professional, nutritional nutrition professional, someone who can guide you on the path is probably a good idea. Um, because that's something that's difficult to commit to um, yourself. Because I, I kind of view that in a similar manner to how I view people undergoing like post-surgical rehab. Like for example, people who uh, rupture their ACL and have to have ACL reconstruction, and they were previously like excellent athletes, they have to invest a long time of just going through boring stuff that doesn't necessarily align with their like what they feel they should be doing. And this is very similar where. You might have had a fat loss goal all along, and especially if you never reached it, you're now at a point where you're committing to over-consuming calories, at least probably over-consuming, for potentially 
three, six, twelve months. And that's really something that's difficult to deal with psychologically. So I can definitely appreciate that. And in that case, like if that was me, what I would be trying to do is have some sort of goal that I can work on alongside that. For example, it could be setting specific strength goals in the gym because that's something you're very likely to progress quite a bit with if you're working um, on, over, on over-consuming calories and sufficiently fueling your training. And what you don't want is to take up marathon running <laughs> or something that's going to drastically reduce your energy availability again. And that's not to say you can't work yeah, on like fitness goals. Yeah. You, know, you just have to be like manage your overall training volume. Yeah. And you just have to be more aware of what you're actually trying to do. Like there was one case I had of a, a woman who she had been through years of like a we'll call it yo-yo or binge dieting, whatever, you know, back and forth, and she had like a huge deficit, then she'd blow a huge deficit. And she was doing that for about I'll say three years, you know? And it took us working together for two years. Like her body fat wasn't even that low. Like it was relatively low compared to the average population, we'll say, you know? But you wouldn't be like, Oh man, she's absolutely shredded, you know? But through years of doing this, like, yo-yo dieting, like, she was just completely dysregulated. It took us two years to actually get into a regular cycle. Like, she would have periods of time where it was like, oh, I got my period back. And then she wouldn't have it for the next three, four months, you know? And it was like, we, we were working on stress management, sleep, you know, obviously the food aspect, keeping training volume at uh, an acceptable level that still allowed her to feel like she was working and moving towards her goals. But all that stuff had been managed, and it still took us two years, you know? Like, obviously, again, there was intermittent times where it was like, oh, I got two together, you know? But to really get it back on track monthly, it took us two years. And her, her ultimate goal was to continue building her family as well. It's like, like, she already had two kids, so she wanted to have, you know, she wanted to have multiple kids and four kids. But uh, that was her goal, and she was like, well, I actually need to start moving towards that. And I'm like, I, I can't be doing it if my cycle is just completely irregular. The only final thing I would say is that I'm mindful that some of our listeners are quite young. So if you're listening to this and you're like 20 or something and you're like, fuck it, I don't want kids, like, <laughs> take more time to think about that before you're just like, oh, I don't need a period or a menstrual cycle. Uh, because, you know, you might regret that when you're older. But yeah, that's, we're definitely not the best people to advise about family planning. Well, I definitely, have, my family just have a huge family, so there's no planning involved. Um, so yeah, let's go on to the next question. Um, maybe one for one for the guys this time because um, I got this on Instagram actually yesterday, not specifically for the podcast, but I wanted to touch on it because I'm pretty sure I saw either the same guy or someone with the same question ask this on multiple different Q and A's of people I know. <laughs> this happens all the time. So the question is very simple, and it's something we discussed before. But a top top set and back offsets or straight sets with a fixed RPE. Like that, that these are the types of questions that people generally ask when it comes to training and I think I think they come from a place of maybe just assuming that there's going to be a best answer like I wish there was like assuming that there's going to be a best answer that's in some research paper or based on one specific mechanism and this is very rarely the case when it comes to training like when I think about this question I'm, I, I kind of think of right what do I do in practice with clients and I'm like all right both I do both very frequently, sometimes within the same program, sometimes never for one individual, like it'll always be one thing, and sometimes other individuals will have always the other thing. But the thing is, like, you really, really do have to ask yourself, like, what actually matters when it comes to training. And one of the biggest considerations for me is, like, adherence and enjoyment for the individual. Like, if someone tells me that I love going into the gym and having a top set that I can work up to, and then doing my back offsets because I know once I've done good on my, my top set, I, I still feel motivated to do my back offsets. For other individuals, they go into the gym, and I actually see this a lot, they do their top set and ignore their back offsets. They're like, ah, these don't matter because I get a new PB. Okay, so you really have to ask yourself, like, like, what way do you interact with the program you're doing? What do you enjoy? And what's most likely to give you the best results? Because ultimately, like, what's required is you to be able to put in sufficient effort on all of your sets. Like, that's ultimately the requirement. Um, and both of those strategies of, let's say, four sets at RPE 8 or one set at RPE 9 and three sets at RPE 7, like, both of those things work 
perfectly fine, but you just need to find a way that you can consistently put in the effort and feel like you're excited to go to the gym um, every single day. I don't think there's there's any like best strategy from that question. I think both are going to work perfectly fine, especially like when you periodize that over time. Like why why not do one phase where you do top sets and the next phase where you're kind of maybe slightly further from failure. And see how that works because ultimately training is about long term. It's about multi-year outcomes, like for some people, multi-decade outcomes. Especially because like most people, a lot of people are training for a side effect of training. Yeah, they're training for the side effect of like muscle hypertrophy, hypertrophy. And uh, but that's like a side effect. Yeah. That's not the effect, you know. And obviously, you can bias things towards enhancing that process, but that's not the actual effect you're looking for. Because what you're actually looking for is to progressively get stronger over time. You know, like that's that's the the underlying mechanism. So, should you do reps in reserve? Should you do multiple sets? Should you do top sets and back off sets? Irrelevant if you're not getting stronger over time, while while keeping tension on the muscle. Like obviously, that's that's the prerequisite. If you're going, oh, I got stronger over time. And, Technique went from perfection to absolute sloppy, you know, bouncing around, whatever. Like your bench press, say, was like a three second eccentric pause and you know, control concentric, and then you just went like, like that's that's not they're not comparable. So, like, there's all these other variables that go into it, but ultimately, the goal is to progressively get stronger over time. So, what, like I was saying, it eventually it essentially comes down to what enthuses you more to consistently get into the gym and like think about it logically as well like there's going to be some exercises that do better with a top set back off set approach yeah. whereas there's going to be some exercises that just don't work well with that for example you might go okay shoulder press like a, a barbell shoulder press I'm like yes i love working up to a top set on that do a back off set or two or three back off sets and that's i like that approach right yeah like, i love getting feeling getting, getting stronger and pushing it on that. First of all, on that, especially with something like the shoulder press, you know, like the, you're going to have to start micro-loading that because it's not exactly a muscle that has a huge potential for rapid growth. Like you're not going to be adding on even 2.5 kilos per week onto that, you know? So that's the first consideration you have to think of. What's the, the progressibility of that exercise? But then also just think about your workout. Let's say we're, we're focusing on shoulders. We move to like a lateral raise variation. You're gonna do a top 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 set and a back off set on that, you know? Like that's it's probably not the best exercise for that approach. Whereas something where you're like, I'm keeping a few reps in reserve and I'm I'm also just, you know, doing more sets and accumulating more volume, but slowly over time, you know, progressing the, the weight that I use. That may be more appropriate for that exercise. So you shouldn't get this dichotomous approach in your head where it's like it's, it's one or the other. It's like they, they have their, their qualities that are good for certain individuals at certain times, depending on the exercise, depending on the goal. Like, like personally, I actually really enjoy top sets and back off sets. Yeah. But I can't do that when I'm doing Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. Like I probably could, but I would actually have to do essentially both. I would have to do top sets with reps in reserve. You know, if that makes sense. Like yeah. top sets with reps in reserve and back off sets with reps in reserve. Because if I just went all out, my ability to train, because I train twice a day uh, on today's like, resistance training, and uh, like I'm just going to be in absolute agony trying to do Brazilian Jiu Jitsu later that evening, you know? So for me, even though that's an approach that I really favor in terms of actually getting me into the gym and progressing, to actually progress given my current circumstances, I'm more reps in reserve. Like I do, like, we'll say one, this, this is literally my program for. The exercises I have, or say the compound exercises I have, it's like one to three sets of ten to twelve reps in a four-week block, and then one to three sets of six to eight reps in a four-week block. You know, and like I have that as one to three sets because there's going to be days where I'm going in after a percentage session, session the night before, and I'm like, my shoulder isn't really there, you know, but like I don't want to just forget about the exercise. Like I have a bit of variability. I'm like, Oh, I'm just not feeling as recovered. I'm feeling a little bit beat up, but I want to still feel like I'm progressing. I'm like, I know the minimum I need to do to keep myself on track at least, if not progress. And I know the, the maximum that I want to do to, like if I'm 
I'm fully guns raring, blazing, ready to go ahead. I, I know what I need to do, you know? So for me, a, a more say, auto-regulatory approach helps me stay on track, you know, given my overall goal. So I just think this whole argument between, like, our reps in reserve better for our top sets and back off sets, like, realistically, it doesn't matter. Also, people just forget the fact that you can also have, like, three top sets, you know? <laughs> Where it's like, you could, you could actually go, like, I'm just going to three sets of failure all at the same weight. You know, like that's people were doing that before there was this top set, back off set approach. It's essentially like this top set, back off set approach is what would, would have been traditionally called reverse pyramid training. Yeah. Reverse pyramid training, because previously there would have been like pyramid training where you go and work up to a heavy set of 15, a heavy set of 12, a heavy set of 8, a heavy set of 5. And it's like, well, if you accumulated so much volume and fatigue going into that heavy set of five, you're always going to be fatigued, you know, so you're never actually going to get to a true five five rep max. Um, so if you flip that on its head, you do a heavy set of five first, and then eight, and then 12, and then 15, you know, it's like, that's a reverse pyramid, you know? And that, that's this where this, that is where this approach came about, you know? So, like, there's obviously pros and cons to it. Also, it really depends on your overall goal because for some individuals there's going to be an approach that actually gets them stronger quicker and what I mean by that is like you due to your genetic makeup due to your like muscle fiber types due to your fucking nervous system like you might be better at just doing a top set going all out and you're able to recover from that and that allows you to progress quicker whereas other individuals if they did that they'd just be burnt out by the, the next, say, lower body session, they're saying, I, my output is just fucking gone. Whereas they, they don't have the same advantages in, in that respect as this other individual. You know, and you'll see generally these type of people gravitate. It's easier actually to discuss this in, in the context of powerlifting because there's, that's the actual outcome rather than the side effect that we're looking at. You know, whereas you're like, I want to get stronger on the bench, squat, deadlift. It's like, well, power programs designed to do that. Let's actually look at it, you know. Oh, some people actually do a top set and back off set, and that's the way they set up their program. And oh, they're actually relatively successful. Oh, they're actually world record holders. And then you look at it, it's like, okay, and then some people actually do more of a reps and reserve or PE type training, more volume, uh, and they are also world record holders. So it's like there's, there's obviously many ways to skin a cat. I mean, like if you're looking at the outcome of saying progressively getting stronger over time, then see that there's many approaches to that, you know? So, yeah, I just think it's a, a non-argument. I'm like, it's do both when it's appropriate. You don't know when it's appropriate. And you shouldn't even be asking the question. Yeah, like, I think if you've got a hard stance in this argument where you're like, everything needs to be a failure, one set to failure, and then a back-off set, or you're the person that's like, oh, it needs to be like multiple sets of reps and reserve. I think neither of those people have ever been exposed to science and definitely haven't read much of the research on, on, on these topics because, like... Also, they're not being truthful with themselves. You see yeah. loads of them, they're like, oh, uh, I used to do three sets of ten and built the majority of my mass on that. Yeah. And, and then I started doing this lower volume. It's like, people, people do that in the fitness industry so much. They look at what they are currently doing rather than what got them to where they ultimately are. You know, it's like, oh, what I'm doing now represents the the putting edge, and it's like, you honestly can't tell, like obviously you can tell what you were doing wrong, if you're doing an exercise or something wrong, and it probably wasn't contributing much, if anything, it was detracting from, from my recovery or whatever, you know, and, but you can be like, oh well I was doing all this stuff and I was getting good results, and you build a base with that stuff, you know, maybe it was drop sets, and fucking, I don't know, supersetting, like synergistic yeah. supersets, or whatever the fuck, it's like, you cannot tell me that like that was just it did not contribute anything to your results right now you know so it's like yes you might think that this is your current approach is a better approach but there was a whole process that led you to that both physically and obviously mentally where you're like okay well like my thought processes have developed over time but yeah it's just yeah because like like personally i think once you begin to once you begin to delve into a more kind of scientific way of thinking about training and you actually delve into the research itself you end up becoming more agnostic, like not more in one camp. You don't 
you don't come closer to like the one special program. If anything, you take a step back and you're like, oh yeah, lots of things actually work pretty fine. And like, I don't care if someone says they do West Side training and someone else says they do Bulgarian training. There is merit to both and you can see why both approaches might work in some context. I can see why that person did well on German volume training because like the point is lots of different things work and ultimately you need to just find a strategy that you enjoy that, and that's appropriate for you and that's going to change over time. The thing with training is that if you're a beginner and you're early on in your training career you probably don't need to worry like too much about, Anything like, about, about any of this stuff because like the the you've got you've got like like the amount of training that you need to do in order to adapt and improve is pretty low, you know. But as you begin to, as you begin to advance further, the level required for you to adapt begins to move up towards the maximum that you can possibly do. So, like if you've got a ceiling to how much you can do, whether that be due to time, other stressors, recovery resources, whatever, if there's a maximum amount you can do, as it, because you've already adapted so much that window becomes really narrow. So you end up balancing in this point where, right, I need to find like the perfect training strategy that allows me to recover and come in and perform in the next session. Because you see that with advanced guys, like if they if they push it too hard, like if they go from their six sessions that are an hour and a half to six sessions that are two hours, like that can that can crush them. They're already lifting really heavy weights, they know how to push themselves. So it's a very also, you see that see this as well, like and that what you're saying really confuses beginners. Because you look at what someone, like I was touching on there, like you look at what someone's doing that's a world record holder, and they're like, yeah, I squat once per week. But then you listen to all these like scientific studies, and they're like, oh, well, they're saying like twice per week is the optimum. It's like, yeah, this guy squats 900 pounds. You know, it's like this, like the, the amount of overload <coughs> they're able to generate in that one session, like it's, it's not comparable to you squatting two plates. You know, and it's like, that, that really confuses people when you look at just the science. Because it's like, well, like, maybe they would do better if they did a lower, uh, we'll say, RPE, like they didn't go to their fucking max out and all, all out effort set. And you can't actually say that because they've found an approach that allows them to get to the gym, to progress, and be a world record holder. You know? So, like, I, I, I just think this argument is like, find the approach that works best for you. Like, you look at, like, Westside Barbell. You could go like, oh, they've got loads of record holders, and they essentially do both. Yeah. Like they do like their max effort days, and then they do like a repetition effort day or a dynamic effort day. But either way, that repetition or dynamic effort day is essentially reps in reserve or or PE training, you know. And their max effort day is you know top sets and back sets. <laughs> so it's like, who the fuck says you have to do one or the other? Yeah, it's a real cop out answer, but basically everything works differently might work better for different people and that's all right and the easiest way to understand this is are you recovering and are you progressively getting stronger over time there is inter-individual variability so anytime like like that's that's just one final point on this like very often what people will do is they'll have someone that they prefer online like whether it be triage or i don't know the muscle men you know the muscle members Muscle manatees. The, mus the muscle manatees. Like, so there's, you know, there's other people that maybe people might listen to and they also listen to us and they listen to, I don't know, Joe Bennett and they listen to uh, 3DMJ and whatever. They'll just pick like one one person and see what they do and then they're like, all right, I'm going to do what they do because they're quote-unquote evidence-based and they seem to have great gains whereas that person could have a very like reasonable justification for why they do a particular program. A good example of that would be like Jeff Alberts of 3DMJ, who's like the most experienced out of all of them, who's been doing bodybuilding for the longest and is the largest and does the least training volume. Like he does very little training volume because over multiple years he realized that like, oh, this is actually what I respond best to. Um, I always get to pick up niggles as I do more volume, so I'm just going to do that. But can all of us do just eight sets a week for muscle group or whatever and grow? Like, no, not at all. Um, and you're definitely not going to see that in some individuals. So, yeah. Things just aren't clear cut. Like, um, just get stronger. Like, this is literally because I know it, it's really confusing. You're like, what the fuck should I do? It's like, are you getting stronger over time with exercises that fit your body? You know, again, it doesn't matter if it's a fucking chest press or a bench press. Like, if your goal is like building your chest, I think it doesn't fucking matter. Like, it's all made up. 
right? So are you getting stronger over time? If you are, and you feel like you're recovering, you know, you're not noticing any signs, your, your sleep is not being disrupted, you're not feeling excessively sore every day, you know, all the stuff that you want to do during your day isn't being impeded by the fact that you, you know, are hardly able to walk because you're crippled from that leg workout. It's like, once you know you're recovering and you feel like you are moving towards your goal, if you are getting stronger slowly over time, again, you have to look at this over a longer time period, there's probably going to be dips and ups and down again, depending on what your diet's like, depending on your lifestyle factors, etc. But if you can look at your a training block or training years ago, oh, I was benching one plate and now I'm benching two plates. It's like, I can pretty much guarantee that your chest is going to be bigger. Like, it's, it's, it's pretty much a no fact, you know? And whether that's a, a huge magnitude of difference, like whether you went from a fucking 30 inch chest to a 52 inch chest, that's an individual response. But I can guarantee if you went from two plates to three plates, you at least gain an inch. <laughs> you, know, you gain something, you know? So once you're getting stronger over time, that's the easiest way to delineate what's going on. Like that's that's the key factor. Uh, anything after that is just, it's a protocol. Yeah. You know? like it's like, like, that's just a, a method rather than a fundamental way. Yeah, you can basically summarize it as like, like if you, if you want to be really accurate about what's most likely to be a proxy for muscle growth, it would be like, multi-rep, let's say yeah. moderate, moderate rep strength, so let's say 6 to 12 reps, moderate rep strength across multiple sets over multiple years while also gaining body weight. Like if you've done that, like I'd be very hard pressed to, to think that like, oh you didn't gain any muscle, like you, you most likely did. So if you can put all those factors together, like you're doing a, a pretty good job of muscle gain. So the next question. I wanted to discuss this. It's a bit of a gripe that I have. It kind of annoys me. So, uh, rhabdomyolysis. How do some high volume fit farmers like myself not have it or get it? So this is this is from Scott Murray, and I actually really like Scott, but I want to troll him in my answer anyway. Um, so, like for those who aren't aware, this is basically like muscle necrosis. It's essentially where you get the breakdown of muscle tissue in an uncontrolled, uncoordinated manner. Um, and it, it, it specifically in this case, it's exertional rhabdo. So that's where you have it as a result of some sort of exertion like exercise, typically exacerbated by conditions like heat, dehydration, and taking certain drugs, other conditions like that. And I also that like you get a really uh, extended position. Crossfitters always get it, not always get it, sometimes get it when they do like uh, ab crunches on the yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, but that's just because they're this like yeah. complete so heavy eccentric and yeah. range stuff. Uh, yeah, there is a there is a case a case report on that of a woman who got who got it specifically from that from doing the blue ham raise uh, sit ups because it was a new exercise. So, like, firstly, I want to start off by saying like, really key point here. Weight training is not that hard. <laughs> I know that's hard to believe for some people because we have such a culture of like, you know, beast mode within the war, man. But like, realistically, like, it's just not that hard. Like, most people don't train longer than 90 minutes. And if they do, they're generally not training that hard. And people who do loads and loads of sets, they generally don't take them all to failure. And they're generally on exercises that are convenient to set up. They're not that explosive. They're generally like, that taxing, um, and then the other thing, I was going to say the other thing was, um, oh yeah, people always, like in weight training, one of the defining characteristics of weight training is different to a lot of other sports, is that people end their workouts or end their their sets or their, their particular exercises when they begin to fatigue, so for example, you do three sets of 12, and then in your final set, you only get 11, let's say, then people are like, alright, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to end that and move on to the next exercise, it's like, you, like, it's not like people are doing 12, 12, 10, 8, 6, until they can only get one rep because they're that fatigued. Whereas that's what you see in some sports, especially in like immersion, like uh, immersion camps where, you know, you've got these almost like Navy SEAL style training camps and sometimes CrossFit do, it, do them. And most of the case reports that you see um, on rhabdo related to exercise are generally individuals who never trained and they were exposed to some ridiculous workout and um, people who did their standard intensity workout but with a new exercise like that the, the ghd sit-ups um or kind of crossfit a lot of them will be in crossfit so weight training like yeah it's hard but it's always very controlled the environment is controlled 
the the end point of the set is always very controlled and generally like that's it as in you do a squat you finish your set of squats that's it you don't go squat box jump sprint burpees <laughs> all in one so that's essentially why I would say that like you don't see that many pictures reports of bodybuilders getting getting rabbed though because like bodybuilding just it's not that hard. Like, yeah, it's hard to commit to it in the long term, but high volume weight training just not that hard. Even fatiguing, like yeah. on a, an energetic cost. Yeah. You know, like obviously, Quite low. if it's if it is, you're doing nothing. Um, but like, you look at like what's the the difference between you know, say you go for a jog for forty minutes versus you weight train for forty minutes. You are going to burn more calories during the jog. Yeah. You know? Just jogging, just, casual jogging. Just yeah, it's not even like. Going and sprinting or whatever, you know. So, from an energetic standpoint, you can clearly see that it's not that demanding, especially when you consider that whatever a third to two thirds of your workout is actually spent doing nothing yeah. you're like resting in between your sets, you know. So, you're actually, even if you're in there for 40 minutes, you're only working for whatever 15 minutes of that, you know. Um, so, it's not that even if you're doing a fucking ridiculously high volume, high intensity, you're gonna drop sets and all that stuff. Workout like it's still not that like likely that you're going to get rabbit. Like there are certain conditions, like I was saying, like dehydration or you know, there's also a huge genetic component yeah. to it as well. Uh, but there are there are obviously case studies that you can get that bodybuilders got it. But like you said, there's there's usually a an, another reason yeah. why this occurred. It's like there was a new exercise. Generally, what you find it was in beginners or people that are newer, we'll say, to training. Like, you, as someone who has trained years, you, you know how to modulate your your effort, we'll say, and, like, you're not getting to, like you said, like, you do this one-off, you just keep going until, like, this you can't get anymore. Like, you're, you're not doing that by the training, which is, that's what more likely to do it. Or, like, a competition setting, you know, where it's like, oh, no, we're competing, this is the CrossFit Open, it's like, we're competing against each other, I'm pushing myself, even if this is my absolute limit, I'm gonna try get that extra rep. You know, I'm gonna I'm gonna keep going. Like you don't do that in the gym. You know, well, some people do. This again goes back to this top set, back top set thing. Like people like to think that they're like, I got to a true top set. I'm like, did you? Did you? Had a gun to your fucking family's head or your head? Could you got another rep? Yeah. Could you? You know, like it's very hard to do a true top set on your own or go to true failure on your own, especially in those moderate rep ranges. But that's kind of the way squat training is. I know we're not going to triples and. Yeah, and so, you know, um, so if you're in that kind of, we'll say, 6 to 15 rep range, you know, man, like, it's pretty, pretty hard to say that you truly went to failure on that. And then, did you do that multiple times continuously? And the other thing is, like, very often, like, people who do this kind of high-volume bodybuilding style training, they really set themselves up for success. I mean, like, they've got drinks for hydrate, everything's perfect, perfect. So, you've got the point that you said that it's not that energetically cost, costly, but you're also doing everything to make sure that it doesn't cost you barely any energy. Like bodybuilders, very particular. They've had their pre-workout meal. They've got their intra-workout shake. They might even have electrolytes in there, so they don't even end up with any like electrolyte depletion, um, so to speak. They're not ending up with dehydration. So it's very different to, I don't know, soldiers who are in a an immersion camp for, desert for a week, desert something. climate, you know, very little water because you, you can only carry so much. Um, like, they're the types of cases where you see Rabdo crop up. There was, there was one case reported, like, a, a sports team, I think it was American football, something like that, anyway, it doesn't really matter. Um, but they had, like, a pre-season immersion camp where it was, like, you know, team bonding, we're all going to suffer together, like, real hot room, hot environment, everyone pushing each other to the max, very little water, people hadn't drank water before. They're the types of time. They're the time you see this stuff crop up. So, do you have to be concerned about like your clients getting rabbed up? Like, probably not. If you're listening to this podcast, you're not gonna go and tell your client to do like, All right, let's do do a thousand burpees in the next hour and don't drink any water. Like, I mean, probably not gonna happen. Maybe. Yeah. There, there. I do know actually one or two individuals who do have whatever. I can't remember the genetic condition specifically, but uh, where they they spontaneously get rabbed up just randomly. In case you're unaware, like if you do ever do any exercise and you are pissing red slash black, um, go to A&E, 
Probably not great even if you haven't gone exercise. Yeah, if you haven't gone exercise, it's generally not good. Um, cool, I think that's that covered. Um, good question, Pierre. Why? True, yeah. Any tips for final year physiotherapy? Um, I don't think so, to be honest. Like, I don't, like, final year physiotherapy isn't that intense. And you're mainly on placement. Like, you remember me moving around quite a bit in final year. You do your FYP. You don't really have that much like intensity in terms of like your modules and stuff. So you basically just do your FYP, you do your placements. So all I would say is like, yeah, immerse yourself in your placements. Be the person who's you know going to get stuck in, um, and that's about it. Like you know what? I obviously left that. Like I didn't continue on with physiotherapy, so I'm not going to be like the preacher who tries to teach people to be the best physiotherapist. So, uh, but yeah, that would be what I would say. You know, just immerse yourself in your placements. Get stuck in confident um, because like I, I definitely think some people do regret that they finish their placement and they're like oh you know I wish I was the person that said oh yeah I'm going to give that a shot because there are plenty of opportunities and then like I definitely didn't make the most of that in all my placements but that would be pretty much what I would say the only other thing is like something I say to all students and that's to like read beyond your degree like your degree gives you very very little especially the content that's presented and especially in physiotherapy and like we have very little education on like just pain in physiotherapy and you would think that that would be like a core thing to try and understand so you know read broadly um, and definitely read more on the areas that you're interested in like if you're interested in sports physiotherapy for example pretty much like, like none of that's covered really on physiotherapy course you definitely don't have an understanding of the relevant exercise science and um, you don't have an understanding of nutrition variables might be important so continue to read broadly and to be honest if you're exposing yourself to our podcast and our content I imagine you're already doing some of that, so you're, you're probably out of that. So, maybe on the Any tips for video students? <laughs> I would just say for anyone studying, it's like just treat yourself like you are actually learning. Yeah, like because you are. Because you probably are. Like, you know, uh, but I mean that not even just in a, a jokey kind of way or whatever. I mean that like keep, like question all your assumptions. Mm -hmm. Like why do you think that this works this way? Like like you said with pain, it's like. It's probably just something that you have experienced in your life, and as a result, you assume you know what it means, you know. But especially when it's all this feeling stuff, it's like you, you don't know, like what you don't know. Like as we always say, like you know, the, the eyes are a window into the soul, right? But that's that's your eyes, right? Because what you're seeing from someone else, like you, I can't feel what you can feel. So I can't feel like you're like, oh, we love each other or whatever. I can't feel your love, you know. Like I can't, I can't actually feel that. So I can't feel an emotion that I've never felt. Does that make sense? Yeah. You know, so I can only feel what I've felt. So your experience of pain may be completely different than someone else's experience of pain, right? But not even that. Your whole sociocultural, whatever you want to call that stuff, around pain may be completely different than the individual in front of you. So you actually have to question every single assumption. This is especially true in any of the, the science adjacent. Uh, that's what I'm going to call them science adjacent practices you know where it's like this okay you can say like like science does a great job of going this is the the fundamental reality of the universe or whatever you know the physics the chemistry the, we'll even say the biology but it doesn't do a great deal in terms of actually going through the human experience you know and if all you use is your human experience to dictate your response to things like you're in a very weird place then because like, you can't actually you can only empathize as much as you as an individual can empathize you know so personally i would think in physio or any again like this science adjacent it's like medicine uh, <laughs> like you have to actually put yourself in other individual shoes yeah. you know you actually have to explore things from a perspective that you may never have had you know and i don't mean going down this road of like grieving studies and, and all that stuff. I mean, actually just being like, right, this is an elderly woman who grew up just post-war or something. You know, her experience of pain may be completely different than someone else, you know? So, like, you actually have to try to put yourself in that situation and actually empathize with what they're coming to you from. Like, you see people that literally have, like, fucking fractured pelvises and they're like, oh, I just get on with it because that's that's how they were brought up. It's like, that's it's just not something you complain about. You know, it's just, you just get on with it. You just get on with your life, you know? So you 
actually might have to treat them differently in terms of actually speaking to them differently than you would someone that you know is your peer that grew up in the same you know even area as you. So you you have to take all that stuff into account. That's what I mean as well. I'm saying like, treat yourself as if you're retarded. Like question all your assumptions. Like again, especially this the science adjacent ones where there is a lot of like empathy and uh, human emotion involved. So if you just use your human emotion, that means that you know you've, you've got one in seven billion or whatever it is chance of being correct. That's they, they're shit odds, you know. Uh, this is also something why I think people should read non-fiction, like actually read people's stories, histories. Yeah. Like I always say this about psychology as well. Like I actually don't care about the average person. I, I could not care less. Like and I, I obviously do, but I, I couldn't care less about that because what I want to do is see if psychology examine people that are absolute fucking savages. Like, like I want to see people that literally fucking survived absolutely insurmountable pressure or situations that still came out. Like I want to see people that are, I want to study that are like, I was the person that stepped up and had the courage or whatever to try and stop that terrorist attack or whatever. I'm like, I want to know like what makes them different because I think that's how we move forward as a society. Like look at these outliers that are doing something that you know, a lot of people would aspire towards. And if we can do that and we understand them, then it's like, okay, we can actually design a, a protocol or a program to try to move more people towards that. And you always see this with the, the Jews, and you see, like, uh, they traditionally uh, are, you always see these people, that, like, they're overrepresented in, like, Nobel Prizes. They're overrepresented in, like, uh, discoveries. And it's like, what are they doing that's different than all these other populations? And you can say there's obviously genetic variability, like, Ashkenazi Jews have like higher IQ and stuff like that, and um, again, like, that's not necessarily the, the perfect parallel to success. And yes, it is obviously part of it. But it's like, what are these people doing? That's what I want to do, you know. And again, if you only ever use your experience, you don't even know that exists, you know. So read, like Gary was saying, but read if you are in like physiotherapy or anything, you're dealing with people. Read human stories, you know, even if it's just like autobiographies. Or, like, if you could read the population, the stories of the population that you're going to be treating, like, whatever it is, if it is sports, like you're saying, like read autobiographies, talk to people that are engaged in sports, see what their, their thought processes are, see what their experiences are, see what, like, try to get an understanding of the, the people in front of you. And obviously, your your practical knowledge has to be on point as well. Like, you can't just be like, yeah, I understand people, great, but, like, I don't know what to do in any of these situations that I'm presented with. That's my problem. Yeah, no, I wholeheartedly agree, and it's particularly important as it relates to pain, because I think, I think in general courses do a pretty poor job of trying to relate, like, what the human experience of pain and suffering actually is, because at the end of the day, it's just a lecture that probably was given the slides, like, two weeks before, and you, you, you have to read broadly, as Patty's kind of alluding to it, there's a lot of, like, qualitative research out there, which can seem quite soft, you know, especially if you're coming from, like, a, a science background, like, you're going to be like, why would you be interested in qualitative research, but... Fundamentally, if you're a, a doctor or a physiotherapist or anyone who wants to work with people, you need to understand what the person's perspective on their condition actually is. And there's loads of qualitative research on, like, how do, like, the perspectives of individuals with knee osteoarthritis, like, how does it actually affect their life? Because, like, for example, some of the, the stuff that we've been taught, like, so, so far in medicine about pain, like, it's been just real vague stuff, like, for example, asking a list of questions by the, the is it an acronym, whatever, uh, Socrates. So it's like, a, all right, how severe is your pain? Could you rate it out of 10? Uh, when did it onset? You know, what's the character of the pain? And the person's just kind of like, oh, yeah, um, uh, maybe a six. Um, yeah, it onset maybe three weeks ago. But like, the more important question is really like, uh, how has this impacted your life so far? You know, that's actually, that's what actually matters because people don't come to you solely because of the pain. It's because they can't do something that they used to be able to do. That's stopping them from engaging in things that are meaningful to them. And there's some sort of suffering experience or disability that is the result of the pain or related to the pain that's acting bidirectionally. And that's communicated, I think, very poorly in general education a lot of the times. So you do really have to, to think about that stuff. Like there's loads of, of cases of like, I've discussed them before, so I won't go into detail on it, of like the Aboriginal Australians and how their pain experience has changed from the 90s to like this decade. Um, as a result of them having more of these biomedical narratives related to pain, um, 
essentially infiltrating within their culture. And how that is manifested is that they now have much higher levels of disability from things like low back pain, um, even though they were experiencing pain then too. So in the 90s, they were experiencing back pain, but it was more their, their concept, conception of pain was more related to spiritual things, whereas now it's related to biomechanical, biomedical things that are broken within their body, and they think that their bodies can no longer do what they need them to be able to do, so they end up feeling like... Uh, their life's going downhill and they can't engage in the things that they used to engage in. So, like, that crossover there between, like, spirituality, religion, and, like, biomedicine, like, is a really interesting place to explore if you're trying to really question your own biases, especially if you're in, if you're in your final year of things. So, so yeah, I think they're from very solid books. I'm just going to pause this because I might get some things in.